0: Our scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Kings, chapter 21, which is found on page 563 of your pew Bibles. Before we open God's word, let us pray. We come on this beautiful summer morning to you, O Lord, to your house to give thanks and to worship. We give thanks for the land we are privileged to live in and the freedom we have, and for all that you provide for us. Keep us from envy, Lord. Help us to be satisfied with whatever we have and to share what we have with others who have less, who are less fortunate, realizing that everything we have is a gift from you. Help us to be generous and constant. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. The story of Naboth's vineyard. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel close to the palace of Ahab, king of Siberia. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use as a vegetable garden, since it's so close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat his wife Jezebel came in and asked him why are you so sullen why won't you eat he answered because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite sell me your vineyard or if you prefer I'll give you another vineyard in this place but he said I will not give you my vineyard and Jezebel his wife said is this how you act as king over Israel get up and eat cheer up I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite so she wrote letters in Ahab's name placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him in those letters she wrote proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify That he has cursed both God and the king and take him out and stone him to death so the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's City did as Jezebel directed in the letters that she had written to them they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying Naboth has cursed both God and the king So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but is dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he is gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah because you have provoked me to an anger and have caused Israel to sin and also concerning Jezebel the Lord said dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to evil in the eyes of the Lord urged on by Jezebel his wife He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in in his day. But we'll bring it on his house in the days of his son. As far as the reading,
1: anybody recognize the space? It's the Grand Canyon in the United States. I have not been there yet, I want to go. Um, but it's a beautiful place. Uh, This is one of the shots supposedly from the south rim looking north uh, and you catch a a wide range of of the rock formations that are there. I like this one because it shows the depth of the canyon that's formed and and shows the river on the bottom of it. I also like it because if you look carefully there's a guy standing on an edge. He's up on the right-hand side, up near the top, and uh, I feel a little nervous for him already. I don't know if any of you do. This one's a little blurry, but it's taken from quite far up. And I saw this one, and this one one connected for me uh, of what vices are. Over the summer, we're going to be talking about glittering vices more commonly known as the seven deadly sins. And this picture to me gets at the nature of those vices. Vices, sometimes we think about, or sins, we think about just as isolated little actions. A one-time event, it could be huge, it could be small, whatever, but a sin as a one-time thing. But when we talk about vices, and we talk about the glittering vices, we tend to think of of things that are beautiful, so I go back a slide. But in reality, they're more like this. They take time. Estimates say it's somewhere six million years that the river's been running through the area where the Grand Canyon was made. Six million, some people say up to 10 million years. It's just been running slowly over that area and carving it away bit by bit by bit by bit. And what you end up seeing here is not only is it going down and digging a deeper trench in one specific spot, but you see all these little arms shooting off of it. All these other areas of erosion that kind of collapse down into it. And when we talk about vices, that's part of what we're talking about. We're we're talking about a a pattern of life that has been established over time. And as, as that pattern gets established other things kind of fall into it as well. Our lives, instead of looking as beautiful as we think they do up close, when we take a step back we see the erosion. Glittering Vices, it's a name of a book uh, written about the seven deadly sins by a professor who's at Calvin College, uh, Rebecca Conondike DeYoung. Um, she's a, a philosophy prof who for about the last 15 years has spent a lot of time researching the history of the vices and the virtues. What makes something virtuous and what makes something a vice. And, and she's got details all over the place about some of these things. But, but she describes glittering and vice in the start of her book. And, and she says glittering as a way rather than deadly sins because there's something attractive about them. She talks about the, the vices actually starting off as a glittering good, something that attracts us and gets our attention and goes, oh, that's kind of nice. I kind of like this. And it draws us in. But they're goods that have somehow been disordered. They've been turned in a way that, that they weren't meant to be. And, and the result of it is that our identity gets warped our sense of who we are gets twisted as well as our relationships with God, with other people, with ourselves, and and even with creation itself. And they're vice, because it's not really focused on a particular action or inaction, something that we did or we should have done. It's not even focused on what's the most wicked or the most frequent of sins. When we talk about vices, we're saying this is the underlying character or, or the posture that we have developed towards ourselves, towards God, towards other people. So as we enter into this season, and, and we'll, we'll spend time focusing just on one each of the weeks we do this, but we're going to keep this in mind, that we're not so much after this little action or that little action. Uh, one, of my, one of my friends sent me an email when He heard we were preaching on this and said, I sense a lot of Calvinist guilt coming on this summer. We're not after that. In fact, by the end of the summer, our hope is that what we're sensing and what we're experiencing is the incredible love and grace of God that anchors our identity, that roots us in in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and gives us hope. Hope that this isn't the end of the story hope that our sins and our brokenness isn't what ultimately defines us. When the vices and the virtues were first talked about by the desert fathers, guys who in the second and third and fourth century took their Christian faith seriously and said we have to actually retreat into the desert to study God's word. When they first started talking about the vices and the virtues, they framed it in terms of discipleship. Not something that saves us if we perfect it, but something, because we are saved, we're called into a new way of life. They quite often reference the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in us in response to a vice to grow in us a virtue. And so each week we'll, we'll talk about a vice. This morning we're going to talk about envy. And, and the virtue that's highlighted in response to envy is learning to love others. So envy versus love. And we'll see how God, through Christ, calls us into that. Envy. There's four elements to envy, and you'll see in parentheses that there's a few other things I'm highlighting that we often associate with these. Envy is, first of all, a desire to have something that someone else has. There's an element of envy that has coveting in it. So it can be, it can be a physical possession It could be a a status symbol or a reputation. Uh, When Rebecca Canondike de Young talks about this in her book, she highlights the relationship that shows up in the movie Amadeus uh, between uh, uh, Mozart and one of his contemporaries. And the contemporary prayed his whole life, said, God, I'll be a chaste man. I will do whatever. I'll live my life for you if you just give me musical talent. And in walks Mozart, who... Had no desire to really follow any sense of ethical living, and God's, God had somehow blessed him with talent, and this envy arises with him. How come he gets all the talent, God, and I've got none of it? And it's that looking at what others have and saying, That's what I wanted. Where's my just? Where's my sense of fairness? You might be able to think of how kids often argue it's not fair. My sister got this. I didn't. That type of thing. Okay. Anybody relate? Need to surpass the other person. So it's not just coveting, it actually is they got one popsicle. I want two. Better yet, it's not just the I want two of greed, it goes one step further. I want two, and I want theirs to fall on the ground. Oh, now we're getting it a little bit, right? (laughs) Do you see the the angst that comes into this and the tension that comes into this? It, It starts off with, I want what they have. No, I want more than what they have. No, that's not enough. I want them to lose what they had. And ultimately with envy, what ends up showing is that their identity gets wrapped up in this. My sense of self-worth is tied into not only my success, but the other person's failure. Envious people envious people often celebrate in the failings of others. They look around them and say, Oh, I'm glad she had that coming to her. Think of a lot of the celebrity gossip that goes on in our culture. We rejoice when someone has some, someone who's been successful all of a sudden gets knocked down a peg or two. We, we kind of delve into the gossip around scandals of people's lives who are falling apart. That envy is related to that. That sense of looking at the culture around us and going, they were successful and they fell down, that makes me feel better about myself. So, envy. We kind of get a framework for envy. Before we go further, I want to read a little bit that helps us dive back into the text that Nella read for us. It's so a friend of mine, Brian Walsh, and a friend of his, Stephen Bauma Prediger, wrote a book called Beyond Homelessness. And in it, there's a little Uh, kind of fictional reflection on Naboth's vineyard. And it's helpful. I don't normally read stories in worship, but it's helpful. So bear with me a moment as you hear a little bit of Brian's take on, on Naboth's vineyard. There was something more about Naboth's wines. I don't quite know how to explain it, but is it possible to say that a wine has the taste of covenant to it? Is it possible to drink a wine and know who you are, know where you came from, know in the very drinking of it that you are a child of promise? Well, that's what it was like to drink Naboth's wines. Some wines make you forget. A glass of Naboth's vineyard shared with friends in the fellowship of good meals made you remember You remembered that God had promised this land as a place of homemaking to our mother and father Sarah and Abraham. You remembered that you were once a slave in Egypt. You remembered how God had liberated you from that oppressive empire and led you on an exodus journey through the wilderness. You remembered that God sustained you in the wilderness with manna, quail, and water flowing from rocks. You remembered that the land of our homecoming was received as a gift from our extravagantly generous God. Maybe that was it. You remembered that the land is a gift, and you could taste the goodness of that gift with every sip of Naboth's wine. Naboth knew that the land, his vineyard, his wine, was a gift, and he cared for it and tended the land with the tenderness of caring for a precious gift. He knew that he had received the land as an inheritance, not just from his father, but from the very God of Israel. And so in the act of praise and gratitude, Naboth made some of the finest wines in Israel. Remembering that we are a people of promise, that we were once slaves and that the land is a gift, we would also remember that the Torah calls us to be a people of generosity And justice. We would remember that security in the land depends on how we treat the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. We would remember that the portion of our crops and our goods that we gave to the priest for distribution to the poor was the sacred portion. We would remember that the seventh year was a Sabbath year, a year of rest for the land and for the forgiveness of our debts. And we would remember that if there was anyone in need in the community, We were not to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward our neighbors, but to be open-handed toward them. Naboth. Did you hear Naboth's response when Ahab made that request? Can I trade you another piece of land? I'd like to grow some vegetables. i like fresh vegetables next to my palace. How about you trade me? I'll give you a better plot of land." No, I, I'll pay you for it. How about I buy this land off of you, this vineyard of yours? Let me, let me buy it. Naboth says, the Lord forbids it. A short response, but a powerful response. Naboth is recognizing that the land he is, he is working, the land he is cultivating, is not his own. It's part of a legacy that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation, reminding him and his children of God's faithfulness. That this land, this plot of land, is part of God's covenant to the people of Israel. And his responsibility is to shepherd that land to garden that land, to cultivate that land so that it will grow and flourish and God's goodness could be tasted. Tasted by him and the people around him. It's pretty remarkable to think that Naboth kept this vision. Because for several generations, several kings in a row, the land of Israel had been divided and torn. There had been enemies coming in and out, grabbing land, losing land. And yet Naboth and his family, in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all these things, they could have said, we're out of here, God. We're going to get what we can for this land and we're leaving. And yet in the midst of all that trouble, they said no. From generation to generation to generation the vision of God's kingdom and God's covenant had been passed along so that they understood the land itself was not theirs. And in understanding that, they understood. Naboth understood that his very life was not his own. A king of Israel then should have at least been able to figure all of that out, right? I mean, the king whose palace was next door to Naboth's vineyard should have been able to see this and recognize this and understand what was happening. He should have remembered the covenant. Ahab is a king who has forgotten his place in many, many ways. Ahab offers to trade for or buy Naboth's vineyard. You know there were rules actually about trading and selling your property. You could do it if you were in financial straits and, and difficult times that you would go to a, a, a relative and say, please buy the land off me. Buy it until the next Jubilee. And take care of it so that, so that my family can be provided for. The, the case of being able to sell the property was to go to a relative, someone close to you, who could take care of it because you couldn't anymore. And it would stay in the broader family. And in that year of Jubilee, it would be returned to you or to your children. That the land would come back. So it was never selling it forever. It was more like, please take over leadership of this land. Take over stewardship of this land because I can't do it myself. And Ahab, Ahab doesn't pay attention to that at all. Ahab just says, Sell it to me. Give it to me. Let me take it from you. There's nothing in Naboth's life that says he he needs a Redeemer at the moment. On top of that, Ahab goes back to his wife and he is depressed. He is down in the dumps and his wife says, What's going on? Why are you like this? You're a king. And Ahab recounts the story and he does two things here. One, he, he switches the order. I offered Nahab a, Naboth money or to trade it. Not trade and then money. And then he leaves out Naboth's response. He leaves God out of it. He says, he won't take the money. He won't let me trade him. That's why I'm down in the dumps. He intentionally... Forgets God. He goes one step further. After his wife arranges for David or for Naboth to be murdered, something that kind of parallels the story with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. David arranged to have Uriah murdered so he could have Bathsheba as his wife and cover up the fact that they had an affair. Jezebel does a similar thing here. Has Naboth killed so that Ahab can go and take the land? Ahab walks in and takes possession of Naboth's vineyard. You know, there were rules around that too. If someone died and there was no one in the immediate family, no son to take it over, it went to the next closest male and then the next closest male. Ahab nowhere in this is in the family line of Naboth. He comes from outside not to redeem the land on behalf of Naboth's family, but to take possession of it. We see time and time again in this passage Ahab forgetting who he is as the king of Israel, who he is as the one who's supposed to protect the land and watch over the land, who he is as the one who's supposed to care for the people of God. And instead, we see him acting selfishly again and again and again to take what he wants, no matter what it costs somebody else. There's an echo in here. I don't know if you noticed it. An echo towards towards the time of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, you may remember, came to offer sacrifices to God. And Cain brought brought some of the crops Abel brought the firstborn and the fat of the firstborn as an offering to God and, and Cain realized God wasn't happy with his kind of half-hearted offering and it wasn't enough just to, to have the pleasure of God he wanted to make sure that his brother Abel wasn't around to steal that pleasure of God from him ever again and so he killed his brother Cain a gardener Ahab wanting to build a vegetable garden. The writer here is telling us, pay attention. The sin of Ahab is as old as the beginning of the story. We haven't learned, we haven't grown, we haven't turned away from our sins. Uh, what's more than that, when, when God confronts Cain in that original story, he says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And Isaiah, as God's mes- or Elijah, as God's messenger, comes up to, to Ahab and he references the blood of Nahab in the ground. And he says, have you not murdered? There's an echo here that we're supposed to pause and pay attention to. That what's happening here is close to the original sin. It is at the heart of our heart. In our relationship with God and our relationship with others and our relationship to the world around us and Ahab the king who was to lead God's people had fallen into one of the oldest sins his heart had become corrupt and it had spread into murder and deceit and stealing we've referenced a few passages in this service. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's really the start of of Genesis chapter 1. It's that emphasis in the creation story and the reason it is so important for us to recognize we didn't come to this earth to, to create it and to make it ourselves and to possess it. We We were created as part of creation, as stewards within creation, and that creation itself is the Lord's. And so there is something in here that that Ahab was forgetting, that Naboth was remembering, that we need to remember. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And Naboth was living out one of the early creational commands. When God makes humanity, the Genesis 2 account places man in the garden and and says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. That word work it is avad, to to till it, to grow it, to cultivate it, to cause it to thrive and to take care of it, shamar. You know that blessing we give, the Lord bless you and keep you? keep you is Shemar. It is a blessing of God watching over and almost most of the incidents where shamar occurs in the Old Testament it is of God watching over his people. And here at the beginning the, the fundamental command given to God's people as he creates us is to watch over creation in the same way that God has promised to watch over us. Psalm 148 we read together as the call to worship. It says not only us humans, not only us are we to praise God, but even the sun and the moon, the hail and the snow, at all of creation is called to praise God. And, and when we put these together, part of what we see that, that Ahab forgot and Naboth remembered is that our role as humanity is to cultivate praise for God from all of creation, throughout all of creation, young and old, That every person and everything in creation is called to praise God together. It's quite a stark contrast with Ahab. You may remember at the beginning, envy really, when it sets in, is wrapping up our identity in something else, in another possession. And Scripture counters that message again and again. Essentially, Scripture tells us, don't forget your value and your worth is rooted in the God who made you and who loves you and who redeems you. Don't let the gifts I give you along the way distract you from that. We hear that, that sense of God loving us coming up again and again. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's pretty clear that Ahab didn't recognize the love of God. That somehow that had been lost and forgotten. and, And with calling us along with Naboth, scripture calls us to recognize the love God has for us. John later on in his life as he's giving one of his last letters and teachings to the the disciples he had been training up. He says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called children of God. And he adds, And that is what we are. He ends that letter by saying, Don't go after idols. Remember, you are loved by God. Remember, you are loved by God. That is who you are. That is where your identity rests. Not in this comparison game with one person against another. Not in proving that you're better than the person sitting next to you. Not in somehow one-upping your enemy. Heidelberg Catechism starts off with that reminder as well. Long before it gets to the ethics of how we're supposed to live, The catechism starts off by simply saying, what's your only comfort? Where's your source of identity? Where are you rooted? It's that I'm not my own. I belong, body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. we've encountered this story. We hear this story. We hear a bit of what envy is. And it leads us on one hand to a space of confession, the comparison game. We all do it at one level or another. Some of us, it's while we're fixing our hair in the mirror in the morning. Some of us, it's when we go clothes shopping. And we need to make sure that we're buying the latest thing, even if we have a closet full of good things. Because we need to have the newest style before someone else does. For some of us, it's as we sit in our cubicle at work and, and we know the person next to us just got, just got some accolades from the boss and we're seething because the boss didn't notice us. And So we look for ways to talk down about the person next to us. Gossip and slander have everything to do with envy. If you think about a a little tree growing up and talk about envy as a tree growing up, gossip and, and slander tend to be some of those first branches that form on it. We start speaking down about the people around us who are succeeding because we want their attention, the attention that they've gotten because our value and our sense of worth comes from from how we stack up against the people around us. Preachers talk about this too, you know. We have a hard time as preachers, and I'm admitting the we, me, going and sitting and listen to someone else preach. Because either I'm comparing myself going, wow, they preached that. I never saw that in the text before. How did they see that? And I run off on this little trail or can go the other way too. Man, they're butchering that text. I would have done so much better with this. Yeah, envy gets us all. It slips in in that subtle comparison game where we stack ourselves up against the people around us and we define our worth based on on what we can do versus what other people are doing. We encounter this story. Ahab, whose whole identity gets wrapped up in possessing this one vineyard His sense of well-being is tied up in possessing this land that was never his to begin with. Comparison game. Maybe for some of us, though, it's more the gossip and the delight in other people's failures and troubles. I mean, how much, there have been studies, I have studies about the types of things that show up on Facebook. A fair number of us are on Facebook, I know, because we're friends, right? But how many times what we're reading is tearing somebody else down? This political season in the States right now, it's unbelievable. Hillary this, can you believe that? Donald Trump this, can you believe that? And it's all gossip. It's all looking to tear down their character and destroy them as people make ourselves feel better by how we can talk down and prove that the other person is somehow less than human maybe that's where we are and maybe maybe part of our confession this morning is to watch what we forward and watch what we post in our social media more than likely though i think for us it's this last one lord i'm sorry I've forgotten that you love me. I've forgotten that you care for me. I've forgotten that you love me so much you sent Jesus to die. And not only that, you raised him to new life and sent your Holy Spirit so that I could live and enjoy a freedom in life that I never imagined possible. And I've fallen into the sin of comparing myself to others again. Lord, I'm sorry. I keep chasing after other things to fill me, to fill that hole in me that only you can fill. Forgive me. I dare say that that's the place when we talk about envy that most of us will need to spend time learning again and again that we are loved by our Father. But when we talk about these seven deadly sins or the glittering vices, it's not just to stay there. It's also to turn a corner. Galatians 5.13 You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. What if Ahab had gone to Naboth and said, You have worked this ground in such a way that it's flourishing. Come teach me how to do that in my vegetable garden down the road. A Different story, wouldn't it? A different posture in, Ahab, in Ahab's heart. What for, about for us? Can we rejoice with those who rejoice? Can we take the freedom God's given us and learn to serve others? Can we take instead of a, a posture of envy and disbelief at how others succeed, a delight and a rejoicing? And when others grieve and mourn, can we come alongside them and sit quietly with them, to be present in their struggle? Practicing the virtue of love. Rebecca Conondike, the Young highlights two things, and I think they're they're good, and I'll add a third verbally that struck me while we were reading the Ten Commandments earlier. The first one is, she says, the way to get after envy, the way to root it out, starts with small hidden acts of kindness. Learning to do good things for the good of others. Maybe it's writing a note to somebody and not actually signing it. I see how you're doing, and I just want to thank you for the way you serve the church. I see what's going on in your life right now and I know you're in a tough space. Know that you are being prayed for. Doing things that don't bring any attention back to ourselves, that that don't fall into that trap of comparing ourselves and and proving that we're somehow worthy. Finding small ways to come alongside others that no one's going to notice. You'll hear that one again next week when we talk about vainglory. Group projects for the common good. Now this might get at some of our competition side, but but there are games now, these group games that we play, right? That there is no team. And we play some of these games in our house that that you work together for a common goal and, and you succeed or you fail together. There's no individual success in the story. And by the end of the game, as we're playing these games, we're, we're actually talking with each other and sharing resources and trying to find out how if we pass one resource to somebody, then, then they could actually help out the whole team. It becomes a sharing project. But what if we spent time doing projects for the common good? One of the dangers of envy is that you isolate and you become so self-consumed that you're only thinking about what can get you ahead in life. What if we spent time looking for how we can help others succeed and others flourish rather than a scorecard approach of I need to get mine even if it costs you yours? The third one, gratitude. Gratitude. Simply taking time to say thank you. Naboth made a vineyard. He made wine. He cultivated life in that place and was content and thankful. Paul, as he's writing to the Philippians, sitting in a jail cell, says, I've learned to be content, whether in plenty or in want. We're called to be a thankful people. Thankfulness gratitude, as a response to God's goodness to us, as a response to him giving us the breath of life today, simply to say, thank you, Lord, and begin there. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a culture that thrives on envy. a culture that seems to to grow and expand and our place within it seems to be made secure by the way we compare ourselves to others. Forgive us for playing that game. Help us to be content, to be content with your calling on our life, to be content in the spaces we are at with your love for us, be content knowing that Christ died for us. May you take away from us all strands and roots and shoots of envy. Guard our mouths so that we might not gossip. Guard our hearts so that we might not celebrate when others fall down. Guard our minds that we might be bent towards seeing others succeed and flourish. May you grow us in Jesus Christ who laid his life down for us that we might live. In him we pray. Amen. Invite us to respond by singing Take My Life and Let It Be.